Dave, explain. Good morning. Good, good, good. How's everyone? Good. You guys want to hear something funny? So, um, you know, I've got this little microphone on, and then it's got this little pack here in the back. And as I was clipping it on my waistband, I remembered, um, I guess it was the last time I wore these trousers on a Sunday morning. Um, they don't have a belt, it's, it's a drawstring. And so when I'm trying to clip on my thing, I'm like, oh, this is, how do I clip it on? Do I put it in my back pocket? Do I? And so the last time I wore these pants, I thought, well, let me clip it on in the inside so it's more secure. And I came up here and literally as I was trying to switch it on, it obviously was not on my, my waist and it just went straight down my pant leg. And I don't know if anyone noticed or if you remember, but I had to very subtly like fish it up out of my pant leg and then like drop it in my back pocket. So it's secure, it's, it's totally secure, I hope. It's on the outside. Okay, so that's, there you go. <clears throat> you guys just needed to know that. Mm. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful morning and just the joy of being your kids, gathering together as a family to encourage one another to listen to your voice together. Lord, I pray that you would meet with each one of us, speak to each one of us, even as we are here together. Lord, we are coming from all of our individual weeks, our situations, our questions, our fears, our doubts, our hopes, and all the rest. Lord, I pray that you would meet each one of us right where we're at. And then, Lord, would you simply exceed our expectations? Pray that you would help us to, to have hearts that are soft, minds that are attentive to the things that you want to say to us this morning, because we are your kids. We need your help, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Ethan, you can maybe just kind of roll me out a little bit. It's, it's slightly uh, ringing. Thank you so much. We're going to go to the book of John today, once again, John chapter 17, and um, as we've said many times over the last few weeks, we've sort of been doing this um, side preaching series in the book of John, and uh, this will be the, the end of the Abide series. So we've been continuing to look at the book of John, the gospel according to John with a very particular angle over the last few weeks, and, and that angle is simply, uh, what does it mean to abide in God's word? Um, how do we do that, and, and what is the impact as we learn to um, rest in God's word, remain in the presence of Jesus as we abide in his word? So we're going to do that again this morning and conclude our Abide series for this season John chapter 17, we're going to begin in verse 4 and read all the way up through verse 15. Jesus speaking. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I have given them your words, the words that you gave me, and, that, and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Father, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's not even the whole, the whole thing. Um, there's a massive chunk of, um, of discourse. This is what's commonly referred to as the upper room discourse, uh, coupled with a, a prayer, and two specific prayer requests. The high priestly prayer is what many of our Bibles sort of label this section as. This is the big talk before the final moment. Um, if, if you're into sports analogies, which I'm not, isn't like some game happening today? Like, who cares, right? <clears throat> no, apparently, a lot of people care. But if this were the big locker room talk before the final play, match, whatever, um, th this is it. Jesus has his disciples together. They're all huddled um, up in this upper room, and Jesus is talking to his friends, his disciples. Only hours before he'll go out, be arrested and crucified, and then three days later, rise again. But this is the big talk. In fact, in verse one of this discourse, he begins by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may be glorified in you. So this is kind of a big deal. This is um, somewhat of a grand finale at least before Jesus goes to the cross. Now, I'm slightly envious. John Williamson, you, you preached a phenomenal message last week, and I was listening to it online. I had COVID, by the way, if anyone 
cares? Uh, <laughs> John, John would have been preaching anyways, but I would have been here um, taking notes. Um, instead, I was at home dying. I was slightly envious because you had this wonderful passage. When, when, you, when it's read out loud, you're like, of course, that, that makes sense. It's a beautiful picture, and Jesus is using, using this vine fruit metaphor, and it virtually preaches itself. And John had all these amazing stories, and, and he's just particularly clear. And then I get this, and I'm like, what is he talking about? Like, what is all of this? It's like he's taking several metaphors all at once, intertwining them, using, like, it's like the intersection of theological categories left and right. There's like a lot going on here. Now, I don't want to take all afternoon to try and unpack it, so instead I'm going to focus just on a couple of things. In fact, I want to break this whole discourse into two parts. Number one, God's vision. And then secondly, the devil's ploy. So that's how we're going to break it up. God's vision and the devil's ploy. Let's start with God's vision. Jesus' vision. Now, as I said, he's, he's taking several words, categories, and, and, and it weaving them together in a way that these um, deep biblical things begin to intersect. And you almost need a bit of a, um, I don't know if they still do it, but back in the day, uh, my kids don't even know, but back in the day, the only reason to get your parents to buy cereal at the grocery store was for the prize inside. They don't do that anymore. Kids are just... It's, it's, it's a travesty. But it, it reminds me of the decoder ring that you would look for in the cereal box. Um, the Bible gives us these like, I mean, Jesus goes like super deep and you almost need somewhat of a decoder ring to kind of like decipher. And it's not like secret knowledge, don't get me wrong. Okay, the, the, the key to Christian maturity is not deciphering secret knowledge, ever. That's, a, that's something else. But it can get complicated, particularly when Jesus begins to wax like theological in this way. So we need a bit of a decoder ring. So that's what we're going to do. Um, in a second, we're going to turn to the book of Exodus. This is how we're going to do it. But let me, let me highlight a few things first. Okay. The intersection of theological categories, God's glory, his name, and his word. Let me read a few verses that we just read. Verse four, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me, and they have kept your word. God's glory, God's name, and God's word. And then he prays in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. God's glory, his name, and his word. Let's go to Exodus chapter 33. Now, some of you are gonna love this. Some of you are gonna be very tempted to tune out. I will do my best. Um, not to be boring. (laughs) 
what are these, um, God's glory, his name, his word, are they all the same thing? Are they parallel thoughts? Um, what does it mean to be kept in God's name? What does it mean to be kept in his word? What does it mean to glorify or to see God's glory manifest on earth as he exists in heaven? Look at Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 18. This is Moses on Mount Sinai. Listen, listen for the words. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, which is the Lord or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then God says now, but understand, I can't let you look at me directly. No one can see my face and live. So as I pass before you, as all of my goodness passes before you and I proclaim my name to you, I'm going to set you on a rock. I'm going to hide you in a cleft so that you will not perish as I pass before you. Who could he be talking about? Chapter 34, skip forward a few verses. 34 verse five. So the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God proclaimed his own name. Verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head forward to the earth and worshiped. These categories, uh, these words, God's glory. God, show me your glory. Jesus says, I have manifested your glory. I have glorified you on earth, having manifested your name to the people whom you have given to me. I have kept them in your name. What is the Lord's name? It's, it's who he is. It's the encapsulation of his character. His unfathomable to the thousandth generation graciousness. His character to forgive, not to simply overlook or ignore sin. He does qualify it a bit by saying, I'm not going to ignore it. I will deal with my people to the third and fourth generation, but in comparison to the thousandth generation, I will so show grace and mercy. So what does it mean to be kept in God's name? What does it mean to be kept in his word? 
It means that Jesus is about to finish what Moses started. You know, after this moment, this famous sort of decoder ring moment between Moses and God, we're told that God then makes a new covenant with his people. Oh, this is a long, wonderful, winding story, all the way from Exodus 34 up to John 17. But he inaugurates this, this covenant, sort of this like marriage contract between himself and his people Israel. It's this picture of a wedding ceremony, and they're exchanging their vows. And all the people say, we do. We will trust you, we will obey you, and here's the terms of the covenant. I'm gonna forgive you and show you grace and mercy for a thousand generations. And many, many generations go by. And finally, here we are now with Jesus. And he says, Father, I've done everything that you've given me to do. I've kept them in your name, I've kept them in your word. What is, he, what is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying what I'm about to do now is a fulfillment of that picture, that event on Mount Sinai many, many generations ago. And God came down and stood with his people, was in their midst in the cloud on Mount Sinai. Jesus had manifested his father's name to his followers. Jesus had demonstrated or embodied what it looks like as a human to live as a child of God. And as Jesus taught them, his disciples kept his word, his commandments, his ways. God's vision for human flourishing for abundant life, for full joy. Jesus is talking about this incredible vision that God has always had for adopting men and women into his family that we might learn how to be children of God. That's what it means to be kept in his name. It's like getting married and taking your spouse's name. You're joining the family. It's not just a formality. It's not just a contractual event. It's being welcomed in the family. It's learning what it feels like, what it looks like to become a child of God. It's the difference between Jesus inviting his followers, praying for his disciples to become children of God versus just simply telling them how to act. This is something much, much deeper than just religious ethics. You know, in the New Testament, this is where I I, I often find myself wanting to belabor this point um, because it's so easy to forget that God's primary vision for people isn't just to get us to act different. It's to transform us. It's to invite us into this process of becoming children of God. And then it's out of that place, out of that place of security, 
when hearts get filled with the Father's love, that we find ourselves getting caught up in this new sort of lifestyle. We begin to love like God loves and view other people the way he views us and and our behavior starts to get molded and shaped and we find ourselves wanting at some deep fundamental level desiring to act like children of God. It's why in the New Testament, which by the way is full of like commandments to to like do and don't do certain things. You know the New Testament is, is chocked full of ethical commandments, right? And some of it, I could actually like go to a few, few places and I reckon half the room would get like properly triggered. Like some of the stuff in the New Testament alone is like, wow, that's, mm, mm, that's, mm, <laughs> that's controversial. I don't like it. Or I love it. Say it louder. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Here's where we get it twisted. Um, We end up focusing on the ethics, sort of the behavior, the morality, forgetting that in the New Testament, moral exhortation is always preceded by gospel proclamation. How we act is always preceded by who we are. The Apostle Paul, in particular, who says a lot of the controversial stuff about how we should not shouldn't act, he always begins his letters by reminding the church, this is who you are. This is who you are in Jesus. Now, let's talk about how to act. But if we ever get those twisted, Oh goodness, we run into all sorts of trouble. So, God's vision, God's vision is to invite people into his family that we might become children of God and then learn how to act like it. This is what it means to be kept in God's name, to be kept in his word. Which brings us to Jesus' second request in this upper room discourse. Verse 15, Holy Father, I'd not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Three keeps. I've kept them in your word. Father, won't you keep them in your name and would you keep them from the evil one? Let's talk about the devil. What is the devil's ploy? Generally, the evil one's vision is to wreck God's plan. That's basically his, his agenda. Take whatever God calls beautiful and good and just wreck it. Steal it, rip it off, add to it, tweak it slightly, counterfeit it, sell it off as the genuine product, and then just rip it apart. Let's ruin what God is doing. Jesus revealed the truth and grants eternal life. The devil is a liar and murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. 
But how specifically? So I can read off a whole bunch of Bible verses on like, well, the, the devil's a murderer, he's a liar, he came to steal, kill, and destroy, and these are all very true things, and things that you've probably heard maybe before. But specifically, how does the devil undermine God's vision for human flourishing, for me becoming more and more like a child of God? What is the devil's ploy? 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul, the apostle Paul, he writes, he says, we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Sometimes I wonder to myself, are, are, are we ignorant of his schemes? Sometimes it feels like the devil's totally winning. I'm like, what the heck? I thought I, I, was, I thought I was supposed to be like keenly aware of the devil's schemes so as to not be uh, tricked, caught up, tempted. What, what are his schemes specifically? Is the devil just trying to get you to believe like weird things and die? Is that really what the devil's up to? He just wants us to believe really weird, unbiblical lies and stop breathing and die. I don't know about that. I mean, I don't, yes, I think the devil wants me to believe weird lies and die, for sure. But to what end? To what end? I reckon a lot of us believe relatively weird things. I don't think anyone's got it all figured out. Any, uh, any QAnon advocates? <laughs> Sorry, too soon, too soon? <laughs> Sorry, some of you are like. <laughs> yeah, we believe some weird things. Um, and the devil is a liar. Some might even argue that that's his like primer, it's his go-to move. Lie, 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 lie. Take the truth, tweak it slightly, and sell it as the truth when it's really a lie. And that'll, that'll, get, that'll get people um, believing all sorts of uh, twisted, self-centered lies about themselves, which will send you on a trajectory straight um, to hell, to hell. So that's part of it, but lies to what end? Lies to what end? What is the devil really doing? What is this scheme that we are apparently aware of? Um, you guys remember Genesis 4? The tale of two brothers, Cain and Abel? You guys remember Cain and Abel? Do you remember the first time sin enters into the story of God? Genesis 3 is the quote-unquote fall, so it's the garden. Should I tell the story about the garden? Okay, you guys, this is so funny. So during COVID last week, my family, uh, we were very diligent to maximize our time uh, by binge-watching Merlin. I think we got through like the first two episodes. Two episodes, two seasons, two seasons. Merlin, any Merlin fans? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, binge watching two episodes, it's not binging anything, okay? Mer you guys remember Merlin? 
like the old BBC, whatever, and it took about a season before I realized, like, oh, it's the exact same plot over and over and over, every single time, without fail. Same thing every time. And, uh, okay, so we were watching Merlin, deep, deep, deep in Merlin. My eight-year-old Judah, um, this is probably day three or four of COVID, he comes to me and he says, Papa, why did God make us this way? And I said, what's, what you, what's wrong, my boy? What are you talking about? He's like, why did, why, why did God make us get sick? And I said, oh, well, shoot. That's a good question. That's a really good question. But you know, I don't think God wants us to be sick. Um, it's, it's part of, of, of our world that's been affected by sin. Um, it's, it's affected our bodies. It's affected the world itself. And, and God never wanted us um, to experience sickness or death. Um, so yeah, I said, what, what do you think about that? And before Judah could say, am I messing it up? <laughs> oh, oh, of course, of course, of course. I said, I said, thank you. I said, do you remember, I said to Judah, do you remember what happened in the garden? Remember the story about Adam and Eve and how they sinned and then what happened? And he's like, oh yeah. And then he got angry and he says, Man, didn't Adam and Eve know that there was going to be seven and a half billion people counting on them? This is my eight-year-old. I'm not exaggerating this. Seven and a half million people. And he was obviously disappointed. And I said, well, my boy, yeah, yes, yes. What do you think you would have done if you had been Adam in the garden? Before he can say anything, my 12-year-old boy, he chimes in and he says, well, if Merlin has taught us anything, it's to never trust a beautiful woman in the forest. (laughs) If you've not seen Merlin, every episode, a beautiful woman shows up in the forest and she's an evil sorcerer every single time. Oh, goodness. Okay, so we're in the garden. (laughs) Adam and Eve sin, but then they have two sons. Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother. It's actually the very first time sin is explicitly mentioned in the whole Bible. It's not until Genesis chapter four. God is speaking to Cain, the man, and and he's, he's frustrated. He's beyond frustrated, he's, he's, he's bitter, he's resenting his brother because apparently he had offered a sacrifice that God found acceptable, but Cain's was not. And we're not even told why. But we are told that Cain, well, we're not even told that Cain was explicitly bitter, but he obviously was. And so God speaks to the man and he says, sin is crouching at the door. You must master it. And the very next verse, we're told that Cain takes his brother Abel out to the field and murders him. Murders him. From the beginning, the devil was a murderer and a liar. The devil's plan is to get a brother to murder his brother. To divide and kill the people of God. This is 
the devil's plan. To turn brother against brother. One child of God against another. To turn God's kids against each other. The devil's scheme primarily, it's not CRT, it's not the GOP, it's not PPFA, PHRMA, NRA, JFK, or any other thing. Did you get all that? I picked a few things for either side. The devil's scheme is to use whatever he can, whatever issue, whatever misunderstanding, whatever offense, whatever lie, whatever is available, a rock in the field, a bit of bitterness, a misspoken word, an offense, to divide the family of God, to turn one child of God against another. Jesus described it as murder of the heart. This is the devil's plan. And so when Jesus prays, Father, keep them from the evil one. He's not just talking about evil or lies or some weird sociopolitical agenda or or spiritual abstraction. He's talking about a very specific scheme that the devil's been using for generations. And that is to take whatever's available, whatever point of bitterness he can find and use it as an angle to exploit that situation so that one brother would murder another, to make the people of God become enemies, to divide them that they might kill each other. This is the devil's plan. You know the, um, the context of 2 Corinthians chapter two, I just referenced it a second ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. Back up a few verses. Here's the context. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I, why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Forgive. Forgive the one who has hurt you. Forgive the brother who has caused the offense so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. What is the evil one's ploy? It's to take that little word that hurt you, that little situation that caused you to feel resentful, disregarded, overlooked, 
misunderstood, left out, whatever it might be, it's usually something very, very subtle. And he works that angle, he exploits it. He twists it until eventually over time, the enemy doesn't have to do any killing. He gets a brother to kill his own brother. What do we do with that? And I realize this is super heavy. Now we're talking about forgiveness. It's been about two years since we bought this building. A lot has happened in two years. A lot of people have come and gone. Um, A lot of friendships have sort of faded away. A lot of families have have undergone um, unmanageable strain, heartache, pain, drama. When we did our uh, week of prayer and fasting, the beginning of the year, I felt very strongly that the Lord speak to me. I shared it with just a couple of you. But I want to share it now. I felt like the Lord say to me that this was going to be a year of a relational healing. There were friendships and even like the church in general just got pummeled, hammered. People got misunderstood. People said stupid things. Heck, I said so many stupid things in 2020. I just, I just, I just wish I could take it all back. I said maybe one or two helpful things, I hope. But so much got said. So much got misunderstood. So much offense. Even to this day, I get nervous when I think about like, talking, talking about anything to do with race in the church. It's Black History Month. I would actually like to talk about race in our city, in our country. Something I think about a lot. And I'm like nervous to bring it up. Because it, it's all of a sudden it feels political. I'm terrified that someone's gonna get hurt. It's gonna trigger someone, some deep level. And that, that matters to me. It really, really matters to me. Because God is building a family and the enemy wants to take anything he can get his hands on and use it as an angle to exploit insecurity, offense. God's vision is to take enemies and reconcile them that they might become brothers. That's God's vision. That my enemy might become my brother. And the enemy wants to reverse that and take my brother and cause him to become my enemy so that eventually one of us murders the other and this all applies to sisters as well. So the enemy's scheme is to undermine forgiveness. And when someone has caused pain, Instead of seeking to forgive them, comfort them, restore them, to seek reconciliation, we would slowly but surely begin to distance ourselves from them in the name of, usually in the name of truth. You know, in the, the Bible, the truth is described as a belt. 
Am I getting my armor right? The belt of truth. Oftentimes we can take that belt of truth, which is supposed to hold our pants up, or something like that. (laughs) Keep your microphone thing from falling into your pants. And we take it off. I've got the truth. We use it. Take our frustration out on all of those unbiblical heathens out there on the other side of the church building. Take that. Well, I'm speaking truth. In love, by the way. In love, in love. (laughs) That's not what the truth is for. God doesn't give us the truth as a blunt instrument to harm others with. Oh, we speak the truth. We, we are a church that believes in the truth. One of the reasons why we work through entire books of the Bible is so that we can't skip the hard parts. As tempted as I might be, we don't want to skip the hard parts. And we don't want to like explain away Paul. What he really meant was, nope. No, we don't want to do that. We want to let the truth pierce our hearts deal with us, define for us what a son or daughter of God is meant to act like. That's what the truth does. We don't ever use it to beat each other. And so I believe this is going to be a year of relational healing. And I believe that there are things that happened the last two years that God wants to address in our hearts I believe there's people who would love to actually come back to this church that call Grace City their church family. And they would love to come back and be a part of this fellowship, but they're afraid because of things that were said, stuff that happened, misunderstandings, hurt, pain, offense that they're still carrying with them. And it's gonna be a lot of hard work to begin building those bridges again repairing damage that's been done, learning how to forgive each other. Can we stand together, please? We're out of time. We're gonna end in a song. And we're going to receive communion. If you're serving communion this morning, would you go ahead and uh, prepare as well? Nelson Mandela said, forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. And that's why it's such a powerful weapon. And the family of God, truth is not our weapon. Forgiveness is our weapon. You know how you begin to forgive someone who's hurt you deeply? Let me end with this thought. This is a process, right? This is not like, here's, here's the secret verse. Say this over yourself and you will magically forgive the people that will hurt you. It does not work that way. Sometimes it takes years and years and years to work out forgiveness. It's like working out your salvation. It, it happens like that, but you got to work it out. And it involves a lot of emotions, a lot of like false starts and try again and get help. And it's, it's a process. It's a mess, but it's worth, it's worth figuring out. You know where you begin? 
if you want to like recognize this is the devil's scheme, I know what you're up to, you want me to harbor resentment towards the person that hurt me, thus refusing to forgive them, even if I refuse to admit it, in my heart, I'm murdering them. You want to know how to counter that? It begins with realizing how forgiven you are. How forgiven you are. The the depth of forgiveness that you're able to offer another is... It's equal to or it's parallel with the depth with which you have been forgiven yourselves. That's why Jesus said to the woman um, who lived an interesting life, when she came into the party that she wasn't invited to and began to, to, to pour her tears out and anoint Jesus for his burial and everyone looked at her and him and they were a bit offended and disgusted by this uninhibited act of adoration, Jesus said, this woman gets it. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. And the way we begin to forgive others is when we take a very painful, honest, hard look in the mirror and say, man, I have been forgiven so much. Ouch. Thank you, Father. Christianity is this weird paradoxical like invitation to enter into a reality that all at once breaks you down to like, a, like I'm just like... I need to be forgiven. I am dead in my sins. I'm eternal, eternally separated from my creator, apart from his grace. And then God looks at me in my mire, all broken down and messy and messed up. And he doesn't just sort of like have that, yeah, you are pretty gross, aren't you? Mm. I'll be in the house. Send one of the servants to get me after you've cleaned yourself up. No, 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 no. The father comes charging at me, arms wide open, throws himself around me, covers me, kisses me, restores me, and invites me into the house. Not because my sin's not that bad. Because the Father's love is just so much bigger to the thousandth generation. It's exponential. It's unfathomable. I have been forgiven so, so much. So much. Like in the core of my being, I have been forgiven. And so when someone sins against me, the way I sin against my father, I have a place to, to, to draw from. The reality that, man, I've been forgiven. Jesus Christ came to save sinners whom I am the foremost. Top quality. Sinner to the core. By nature, a child of wrath and a forgiven, beloved child of God. That's where I draw from. That's where I reach when I've been hurt, when I've been misunderstood, when fear and insecurity begins to overwhelm me. I'm like, let me draw from that well of forgiveness, that deep, deep well of God's love, that thousandth generation love. Let me draw it up. 
and begin to spread it around. That's what communion is. We keep coming back to that place over and over, no matter how quote-unquote mature we get as Christians. You know what a mature Christian is? It's one that realizes I need God's grace more today than ever before. That's what maturity looks like in the family of God. And so we take communion virtually every week because we don't ever graduate from who Jesus is and what he did for us to make forgiveness a reality. We take the bread and we dip it in the juice. It's the body and the blood. And we eat it. And we say, Lord Jesus, fill me afresh with your love. Teach me again how you see me. What does it feel like to be forgiven? Now help me to be a conduit of forgiveness for others. That we might be your body on planet Earth. Ministers of reconciliation. Wherever there's pain, wherever there's offense, we would walk in the way of forgiveness. Being children of God. Now, If you want that, if that actually means something to you, and when we're going to begin singing, I want, I want you to take communion, receive communion. If you're not ready for that, if you're like, ugh, that's, I, I don't know. I don't know about all that. Don't be pressured. This is a, this is a kind of a serious thing. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. Wherever you're at, it's an invitation. Father, help us. Amen. Whenever you're ready. reminded like the Holy Spirit remind me that forgiveness can be a hard thing forgiving those who have sinned against us sometimes I wonder though uh, what's harder forgiving those who have sinned against us or receiving the forgiveness that our Father has made available to us in Jesus. Sometimes we talk about, like, I can't forgive myself. Truly, I don't think anyone can actually forgive themselves. But the, the sentiment is simply, like, I, I don't... I can't grasp how God would forgive me. And I find it difficult to embrace this, this incredible love, like on an emotional level. Am I really that loved? Does God really value me that much? And I think it's a miracle when a, when a frail human like me 
like you can begin to embrace God's love. Jesus didn't go to the cross just kind of hoping that maybe we would receive his love, that maybe somehow we might be convinced after the fact. No, no, no. It was much more than just an expression. It was much, much more than just a token gesture. It was God's victory. It was the devil's defeat. It was his declaration. You are loved. You are loved. Whether you feel it or not, whether you are in the process of embracing it or not, in Jesus Christ, you are loved. Whatever you did last night, whatever you do tomorrow, the event is done. It's finished. Jesus Christ conquered death. The Father has poured out his love. You are loved. Oh, what a miracle. If we can begin to walk in that. Good Father, would you help us? Would you rip our hearts wide open just like you tore that veil? Would you begin to fill us afresh with your love? Would you convince us on a core level that you have made a way, that we are forgiven because of who you are and because of what you've done? Help us to be your people, Father, who walk, who revel in, who live in your love. We love you, Father.